Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. There's a lot of mythology out there about what people think it really is to get to the top and stay there. And there's a lot of mythology in terms of mindset. If we're talking about ways of preparing the mind, I guess you could look at gratitude journals. You could look at positive thinking that are like pre-preparatory. But I think in real time, as we're meeting life head on moment by moment where real things are thrown at us, there has to be a champion's mindset that can recognize and respond to the challenges to avoid preventable problems and capitalize on best opportunities by having a state of readiness to step into the things that are probable. And so those are what I work on very well with the athletes to make sure that we come from our champion self, not from our human nature, fear-based self, because you cannot create excellence when you're driven by your fear impulses. You have to look at life through another different lens to do that. And that's what the champion mindset and what the champions have showed us. Welcome back to The Better Podcast with yours truly, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for high-performing women who want better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families, and want to hear from a woman that can take the complex science and make it easy to integrate into everyday life. Every week, I'll be giving you access to world-class scientists, medical doctors, plastic surgeons, professional athletes, Olympic gold medalists, Hollywood actors, parenting coaches, sex experts, and psychologists. I am always looking to answer this question. What are the simplest things that we can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and it is my mission to be the voice for women. Let's get better together. Today, I have an exceptional interview to share with you from an exceptional person. His name is Dr. Jeff Spencer. And Dr. Jeff has been in my life actually longer than I've known him personally. And I'll explain a little bit about that in a moment. And just before we get to the bread and butter of this wonderful podcast, I wanted to take a moment to read a review that came in that I just thought was great as well. This is from Michelle R. from the United States. And her review says, this is the period, best period podcast, 100% worth investing every single second in listening. I find Dr. Stephanie to be so real, so kind, so open, so sharp, and so spiritual. It's like she combined all the things I geek out on in this show. I feel like I'm listening to my friend and I'm loving it. Dr. Stephanie, thank you for bringing this content into the world. You are beyond inspiring and I so appreciate all the research, the learning, the hard work that you are obviously putting in to this podcast. So thank you, Michelle, for that exceptional and marvelous review, truly. I really, really appreciate it. And again, 
anyone who's listening, all my Bettys, anyone who's listening that has found value in any of the podcasts that I put out. Michelle is right. I put a lot of time into this. This is my baby. I have three children at home and the podcast is my surrogate fourth child. So if you are finding you if you're finding it valuable, I'd love to know how and why. So if you want to leave a review on iTunes or a rating on Spotify or wherever you listen to the pod, that would be wonderful. Okay. So let's get to this absolutely incredible interview with Dr. Jeff Spencer. So a little bit of background on him. At age the age of seven, he committed to becoming an Olympic cyclist. Can you imagine at seven years old setting your goal to go to the Olympics? And at 21, he competed in the Olympics in Munich. And soon after that, started helping other performers, other athletes, and other high-performing men and women tap into their highest potential. And he found that that was equally satisfying to him. And since then, has really moved into being an athlete to something that he calls a cornerman or elite performance coaching. And the accolades and the people that have worked with him, I don't think there's many people who in the high-performing, you know, when you think about some of the names that he's worked with, with we have you know Dave Asprey we have four-time world sprint cycling champion uh, Car- uh, Connie Parasquevin we have you know the CEO of Hitachi and other big co- uh, corporations Tiger Woods uh, Lance Armstrong Richard Branson the le- the list goes on and on so Jeff and I, as I mentioned, I've, I've had a relationship with him before uh, he knew who I even was. So he was someone that I revered when I was in chiropractic school because at the time when I was going through chiropractic school, he was a doctor on the Tour de France team. And I just absolutely looked up to him, absolutely said, okay, if this guy can get on the Tour de France team, A, I need to meet him. And B, that means that it's also possible for somebody like me who is obsessed and still is obsessed with sport, uh, high-performance sport and exercise. So in our conversation man, you're going to get so much from this. So we actually talk about a broad list of things and it's all related to performance. So we talked about his role or his upbringing with his mother and his father. Uh, His father, who uh, ended up uh, being homeless, couldn't seem to find his way, and really spoke about some of his early childhood experiences and how that shaped his behavior. He talked about some of his uh, mentors and talked about his experience in the Olympics. Now, he competed in the 72 Olympics, which was the Olympics in Munich. And if you if you remember anything or if you read anything about the Munich Olympics, this was the uh, site of the Munich massacre where there were a Palestinian terrorist group, Black September, and there was a bombing where 11 Israeli Olympic team members... Uh, were killed. And this was, uh, along with, um, there was a West German uh, police officer. And 72 is when we there was still East and West Germany. So he talks about that experience and he talks about how it left an impression on him. And then life after the Olympics, right? Went on to become a master, get a master's in sports sciences, to become a doctor of chiropractic. And in our conversation, we talked about the champion's mindset. And this is the juice, guys. This is where he really paints the picture between 
what he would call a champion's mindset and a you know basic or human mindset. So we're talking about how a champion will start with the end in mind and how there is a starting process and how there is a mindset that is distinct and different in terms of how we look at the world. So for example, I'll give you a quick example. He'll say like a champion's um, a champion or a, a human might say, you know, what do I stand to lose? And a champion might say, what do I stand to gain? So there's just this like nuance in the way that champion, like he has seen champions approach problems and solve them. And he goes through his entire framework, which is incredibly useful. And then at, then we got into parenting. So when you speak to someone who has the accolades that he has, and then he describes his experience as a parent. So he adopted um, a child and from Colombia. And she, and he goes in the story, so I won't ruin it for you, but talks about the challenges from raising a child who was born into abject poverty, abject you know, crime, and was used to taking advantage of other people as a means to survive, into moving her into someone to adopt his championship mindset. And it's just a wonderful uh, example of how you can take this framework, this championship mindset framework, and apply it to any part of your life, wherever it is, whether it's in sport, it's in your career, it's in your relationships at home, it's in your parenting, it's in your personal relationships. And Dr. Jeff is someone who has helped me through some of the most difficult things in my life, closing uh, the clinic when I was first doing a relatively big uh, documentary with uh, Dr. Mark Hyman. I was so nervous and he really walked me through how to get over myself and how to get out of my own way. And we talk about that in the podcast as well. So without further ado, please save this one. You're going to love this one and come back to it. I know many, many times over. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Jeff Spencer. I am a huge fan of the Bio Optimizers Magnesium Breakthrough. It has seven forms of magnesium, which is going to help to transform your stress and your performance and your recovery and your sleep to the next level. I'm often asked like, well, what are the types of magnesium we should be looking for? So there's magnesium chelate and citrate and bisglycinate and malate, sucrosomial, taurate and orotate. They have various effects on the body. Bisglycinate, probably the most bioavailable and most absorbable. Malate, it's found naturally in fruits, helps with migraines. Chronic pain has been shown to help improve depression. Magnesium citrate uh, helps with arterial stiffness. It helps with maintaining a healthy weight. Magnesium chelate is important for muscle building, recovery and health, the list goes on and on. You're basically getting them all in one supplement. Each supplement itself is 500 milligrams of magnesium, which I feel is such a a great dosage as a great baseline for most women. I have found a beautiful medium of actually cycling my magnesium. So I actually will take one or two of these. So I'm either getting 500 milligrams or up to a gram of magnesium, depending on where I am in my cycle. So head on over to biooptimizers.com forward slash better and use code better for 10% off of any order, but make sure that the magnesium breakthrough is in your cart. Don't be fooled by the frigid temperatures. Keeping hydrated in the wintertime is super important. 
In colder temperatures, we sweat more due to a higher metabolic demand of trying to maintain a core body temperature. We lose more fluids and electrolytes through our urine. We lose more water through respiration and just general breathing. And our skin dries out in the wintertime as well. We are a ski family, and over this winter, we have been using Elementee's Chocolate Medley. The chocolate chai is absolutely incredible with some boiling water, a splash of milk. And my kids love the chocolate mint with some hot water. This is our apres-ski. We cozy up with Element Hot After Hours on our cross-country trails. Now, for a limited time, you too can get the Element Tea Chocolate Medley and enjoy them hot, as I have been doing, with this exclusive insider bundle for you. When you buy three boxes of any flavor, it doesn't have to be the chocolate, it can be any of the flavors that they offer, you are going to get the fourth box free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And tell me which of the chocolate, Melody, you love the best. I am so excited, uh, Dr. Jeff Spencer, of course, uh, to welcome you to the podcast. You have been uh, a mentor, a coach to me, a friend, um, and I'm really excited to be unpacking your wisdom and your experience, particularly around a performance today. It's gonna, we're going to have a really great conversation. Well, that's my all-time favorite subject, so ready when you are. So let's, uh, let's start at the start. You know, you have a very colorful, you're very decorated, you have a very colorful history, um, an extraordinary amount of value to unpack to our listeners, especially, um, you know, our listeners come to the podcast, they want to learn how they can get better in, you know, whether it's physically, mentally, emotionally, as a parent. And I think that you are, you are going to, you know, I'm going to make a prediction. I think you're going to over-deliver in all of those categories. But I want to talk about how you came to be the person that you are today. And specifically, I want to go back to your origin story and your observations around your parents, mm-hmm. uh, in particular, your father, mm-hmm. and how what you observed about, around him and his life, how that shaped your, uh, your thinking, your beliefs, and, and your behaviors. Well, first off, uh, my dad was a an artistic genius uh, that could command any price for his work, uh, both as a fine artist, but also as um, an illustrator. I, I did get the artistic gene uh, from him and my mom. My dad was uh, really absorbed in his work, but it wasn't a ma- malicious, uh, it didn't feel an absence of him in a sense that he was doing something that meant a lot to him. And I was a very independent you know, kid that just kind of followed the path of my inquiry. So it seemed to be a good fit. And I never grew up with the word can't because I never heard it. So he was a bit of a non-entity, but I had access to watch him work because his studio was attached to our house. And I did have this exposure to the highest level of creativity, artistic design, etc. But I also uh, saw something else is that despite his talent and his will, and what he could produce, he ultimately died homeless on the streets of New York City. That I found out about 30 years after the last time I saw him when I was 13. So I learned a very valuable lesson there is that will and talent are something, but they're not enough. And then 
what the saving grace of that was is that I did have angels come into my life, two in particular, that uh, uh, showed me uh, what a father uh, should show me with my level of receptivity. And my first cycling coach was a three-time Olympian, five-time national champion. And he taught me how to win. He taught me the art and the skill of winning. He said, first, you're a human that needs to know how to to succeed and learn that process. Mm. And then you become a great cyclist second. So I had a massive advantage because he crafted my mind on how exactly do I successfully engage creating predictable and consistent and repeatable success in my life. Mm-hmm. And as a result of that, I, I did become an Olympian, which was an ambition that I had at the age of seven, even though I didn't know how I was going to do it. He was the force that made that happen. But also to say that there was a, another angel that came into my life when I was 18, and I was still three years away from becoming an Olympian. I was enrolled at the University of Southern California, where I was studying sports science. And simultaneously, this 76-year-old Victorian man came into my life who I met through a neighbor when I was 18 that uh, was a true Renaissance man. He was an Emmy-winning author of a movie that was done about his creative philosophy. He was a trained university metallurgist. He was a war correspondent in World War I. He was a playwright, a poet, an author truly a renaissance man and he chose me to be his apprentice in helping him create his glass art masterpieces so it was a very unusual athlete now become artistic apprentice which is an oddity in and of itself being apprentice at 18 to a 76 year old master there was this huge age disparity but mm-hmm. the value of this was is that during the breaks that we took when i was assisting him on the weekends he would play uh, classical music to me he would read to me poetry he would share with me the great philosophers. And he said, I need to fill you up on this stuff because he sensed I had a capacity for it, which I did. And that kind of nuanced side of myself combined with the intellectual side that I was getting from university training, plus my preparation for the Olympics and my physicality matched with the knowledge from my first mentor on how to uh, win and succeed when I had the self-starting gene, it created a very kind of potent cocktail that could step into and be successful at, at many different things. But uh, had it not been for my father's genius and flaw, who knows what the path might have been. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting when we talk about you know, our parents and of course, it's, I mean, no child wants to know that their father died homeless in the st- you know, on the street, even though they were an artistic genius, but you have to also thank that, like you have, it's like the good with the bad, right? You have to thank them for the gift and the curse because that's how you were able to, you know, you can call this woo-woo, you know, manifest those, those mentors and have those wizards, you know, along the way on, on your, on your hero's journey. Right. Yeah. Well, I think, I think we, you know, for me it was, is that I realized that my parents were my age once too. Yeah. And they had their own thoughts and they had their own vulnerabilities as a human, like we all do. And some of us are graced with finding a way out. Some of us aren't. And the hand that we're dealt is elusive to try to figure out the why behind it. But just to say that I felt that I was extraordinarily lucky because neither of my parents 
imposed a you can't. I'd, I'd never heard the word can't in my vocabulary. Mm-hmm. So possibility, it never occurred to me that something wasn't possible or, or worthy of investigation and consideration. So you were, so what, what age did you start cycling? I started when I was 10. You know, when I was seven, I wanted to become an Olympian. I thought that'd be cool. <laughs> and then when I was 10, I showed some unusual ability on a bicycle. Yeah. And I realized, well, maybe this is how I'm going to do it. So that's how I formally started uh, you know, my bicycle uh, career. Nice. And so you make the Olympic, the Olympic team. You're, you become a national champion at some point in the late 60s, I assume? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I targeted when I was 11 in uh, 1962, I decided it would be the 72 Olympics in Munich. That was my target. Man. So yeah, there were 10 years devoted to that process. Yep. And then you are an Olympian for the seven uh, and representing the U S that's correct in, in two, two sports. Yes. One is 10 or not two sports, but two, um, one is two tandem cycling. Events. Yeah. Yes. And one is the individual sprint. Right. Two different events. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So let's let's talk a little. First of all, I had no idea what tandem racing was. It's a death. It's a death sentence. It, it is sheer. It is sheer terror. I mean, seriously, you're you're traveling like two football fields in length in like eight seconds with two people on a bike. Yeah, you're going like sixty miles an hour. It is like you you start to hear the bike start to break apart because it can't handle the loads and the power. It's like, please stay together because if it doesn't, it means that I'm going to skid on this wooden track for 200 feet. And the only thing between me and the track is my skin. Dead. And I don't want to smell my skin vaporizing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not yeah. my idea of fun. So, yes. Man. Yeah. So, let, let's talk about um, your experience as an Olympian and the Munich Games. Um, when we think about it, well, first, let's, let's, Let's talk about what it felt like to, or maybe you can describe your experience in terms of what it felt like for you to be, you know, competing, you know, for your country, the excitement, the nerves Did you feel like what was going on in your mind? Did you feel, I mean, this is the pinnacle of, of, of human achievement, right? It's like yeah. being able to compete for your country at the Olympics. So what, what is happening for you as you arrive in Munich, as you see the mm-hmm. Olympic Village and, and see your team, the U.S. team that year? Well, a couple of points to this I think are, are important. Is that When I was working as a kid in a bike shop, a guy came in wearing a t-shirt that said USA Olympic team on it. He doesn't even remember wearing it, but I saw it and I said, I wanted that. And the only way he could get it was to become an Olympian. So that became the logo that inspired me to stay in the game for 10 years because I wanted the T-shirt. You know, and I thought it would be really cool to wear that T-shirt. And uh, so um, the Olympics is very tedious. You know, people think, well, you gave up a lot. I, I think, what well, if you don't go for it, that's what you're giving up. I feel like they're the ones that are giving up something because they're spectators. And so I was easy for me to do, but it was tenacious and it fit, my, it fit my mentality perfectly where you're fully committed to do whatever it takes to get what has to get done, done. Mm-hmm. And the reward of that is I can honestly say that I know what it's like to play at your full potential. And I can tell you that there's nothing more sublime uh, or euphoric in the human experience is to experience your hu- superhuman nature and the capability and potential of that. And when I experienced that, I kind of felt like an astronaut coming back from the moon. Mm. 
where you have this different perspective. You just can't relate to life like normal people do because the scaling of possibility becomes so amplified in its limitlessness that you just look at life in an entirely different way. I also, uh, being in the Olympics, felt an incredible debt of gratitude because coming from a welfare family, my parents could not have afforded me to do what had to get done to have a chance to become an Olympian. And it was the very generous contributions of the American public that enabled that to happen. So it was with a great debt of gratitude that I felt a different level of purpose to to honor everybody that played a role in this. Uh, And I realized that contribution and support does matter. And I learned that winning does matter. I, I feel that we have a moral obligation to perform at our highest level continuously as a way of honoring our talents and also honoring the giants that we stood on their shoulders to become what we could have been, that without them it would have never happened. So I was very mindful of the reciprocity of holding up my end of the bargain. The competition is intense because you're going up against the best of the best, but you're there to test yourself out to test how far you can go and to test yourself against the possibility, which is a great metaphor for life in and of itself. Yes. You know, I mean, truly. Um, The other thing is that I remember uh, one morning getting up, going outside where I was staying in the Olympic village and there was a crowd amassing about a hundred feet from me. So I went over there and I stood with the crowd and this guy was pointing his finger up. And so I followed his finger up to a balcony and there was a guy with a ski mask over his head. And then I learned that at 4.30 that morning, there lay dead in that apartment three Israeli athletes that were killed by, murdered by Palestinian terrorists, literally like 100 yards from where I was. It was surreal. It didn't seem remotely possible to me that that could be conceivable at a celebration, but yet it was real. And I realized that when the armored vehicles were coming into the underground structures and the helicopters were showing up, the military were repelling out of the helicopters and sweatsuits, you know, with machine guns. I mean, this is like the real deal. And this it was is West, West Germany, right? Yeah, so that's West also Germany, important. Munich, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's like, it's a, to wrap my brains around that was, mm. was really hard to do. And I knew that it was a moment in history that there was a shift in how business was now being done in certain like situations. So it, it, it took a while to get over that because the other nine Israeli athletes that were uh, taken to the airport for safe passage to get the terrorists out of Munich were loaded onto a helicopter and a terrorist got nervous. It was uh, with the athletes in the helicopter and dropped a hand grenade on the floor and blew the helicopter up. So there were nine kind of peers of mine that were splattered against the walls of the helicopter that I was, I was fortunately done competing at the time, but it's uh, taken me a lifetime to try to figure that insanity out where you had the best of humanity uh, concurrently mixing with the worst possible outcome of human decency that impacted me permanently like forever um and so that was my experience and so my take home is for everybody that 
you know, please take the time to give yourself the courtesy and have the courage to try to explore the limits of the possibilities that you consider for yourself because it's a worthy cause. And I feel the rewards of what and how we honor uh, our uh, humanness and our past through this dimension is held in the balance of that. And there's only one of you in all of creation and none of us are insignificant. And that would just be something that I would, I would say to everybody mm-hmm. that you explore the possibilities that, that occur to you without any reservation or hesitation. Yeah. That's the, that's the big bloody stain on those Olympics, right? It's like athletes, they come to compete, right? They come, they come at peak performance. Yeah. The, yes. You know, the spirit of the Olympics is it doesn't matter what these artificial lines are in the sand that we call borders. You know, we're, we're not here to make political statements. We're here to just Truly. celebrate humanity. And that's, that's, yeah. And there's, there's actually, there's a movie I remember watching it many years ago. I think it's called Munich um, that actually goes through the whole story. If uh, I could just share one thing here to, to mm-hmm. really punctuate that point is that in the Olympic village, they had a theater that all the athletes were welcome to come to at any point in time. And I remember I went in there and it was filled and the athletes were in the aisles and standing up on chairs and each other's shoulders. It was packed with the different colors of the sweatsuits from the athletes from all over the world. And everybody was laughing their heads off in unison. And I finally felt what it was like to truly experience a world at peace with itself and in harmony. I mean, I honestly felt that. Mm. And what was so amazing about that is that the movie that was playing was Charlie Chaplin's masterpiece. Um, it, it, was, uh, it, it was his masterpiece that uh, was being played. I can't remember. The modern Times is what it was. It was a silent movie. It, so there was no language barrier. It was just all the athletes understood what it was from how it was being portrayed. Mm-hmm. And we unified as a collective. And yeah. so just imagine me next to a Soviet athlete and we were supposed to be at war with each other, but right. I never felt that, you know, I just felt that this is just one amazing community, all colors, all creeds, all everything. But we experienced this thing, the singularity moment in human history where I really understood what's possible when you can come together through a common bond or experience where everything else gets stripped away. One of the most profound experiences of my entire life. Yeah. And that's why I think your story and your experience and your teaching is so important because you've had this concentrated microcosm of the best and the worst, right? The yin and the yang, the peak in the pit, all in one very short uh, period of time. Very much, very much so. Yeah. So what happened? So when you come home from the Olympics, so you now you, you know, check off the box, the 10 year goal, I'm an Olympian now for the rest of my life. You know, what, yeah. I, I know at some point you become a chiropractor, but, and I, I, I think you might've already had your master's in sports science at the yeah, time. Yeah, so, so here's the genesis. It's a little like when I got back, um, it was surreal. It's like I, part of me couldn't relate. Yeah. It's like, well, my, you know, my toast is cold. Well, so what? Just eat it anyhow. You know, I, I mean, just the scaling of the human experience versus where I've been. Yeah. It just, it bent my frame. It just changed my mind in a way that it was kind of difficult to kind of reenter society again in a certain sense. 
But then I uh, completed my undergraduate study. Then I finished graduate school with a master's degree in sports science. And then I started advising athletes that wanted to win gold medals and make millions of dollars as professionals. And I had business people come to me that wanted to become their own champions because they knew they needed to be a champion in business. So I started working with them. Uh, And then it was really interesting because the athletes said, well, I need to extend my career to create the best legacy possible. And the business people that were my clients as I was helping them become their own champions and their own peak performers, um, they said, well, I don't want to be like my same age counterparts that are all dying of heart attacks and strokes in their early 40s. -hmm. How do I not do that? And that's when I decided to go back to school and um, get my primary licensure in the chiropractic profession, which I specialized in wellness care for the uh, business people. I uh, performed and specialized in acute trauma for the athletes. And so with my Olympic experience, my academic knowledge of how to craft a body that can push and stay in the game over the long term and how to get and stay well, I had this 360 degree full spectrum view of the people that I was dealing with that allowed me to craft personalized paths for individuals and teams to get from where they were to the pinnacle of their ability to perform, but also keep them there over the long term to amass a legacy of intense value or perhaps to become iconic. And so that was kind of the trajectory and how that unfolded over the next 20 years. And I'll also kind of mention that the artwork that I was doing with the master that uh, I met when I was 18, I developed my own side to that and i ended up showing my art in the best galleries in new york city so i was a very accomplished glass artist simultaneously with being an olympic athlete while advising these people becoming their own champions so it's kind of an interesting mix that was uh what my life was uh, made up of at that that time and i and you know you were also you know you're not going to say it because i know you're too humble but i will you were recognized as one of the top sports chiropractors in the world it's true and I remember, so I've known you. I don't actually think I've ever told this to you before, but I, so I went to chiropractic school um, 1999 to 2003. That was my year, four years at CMCC. Um, and I, I, I remember knowing about you in my first year oh, you I, <laughs> because I, there was a chiropractor on the Tour de France team and that was you. That's and I remember thinking, okay, this guy, like I wanted, you were my hero because at the time, like back then, and it's much, it's much more common now, but you had like the ATs, the P, you had the athletic therapist, the physiotherapist, you had those mm-hmm. people on the team. It was more of a rarity back then to have mm-hmm. a chiropractor as on, on the medical team. So yes. I remember thinking, okay, I, I don't know who this guy is, but I am going to emulate. I'm going to follow like you were a legend to me. Um, so I knew about you from when I was just an itty bitty, you know, DC, little baby DC to be little student. And I, and I knew, cause I thought I was going to do my sports fellowship after, you know, I, I had all the things uh, mapped out. So I've been watching you for, for a while. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad that it, we had the chance to meet and share these amazing experiences with each other. So, yeah. you know, thank you again for everything that we've shared thus far and those things yet to come. Yeah. So let, let's talk a little bit about your time uh, on the, like a tour. You, you coached how many tours? Eight or not? How many of them? Yeah, I did you? nine. I was involved in nine tours. Yep. Yeah. And tour those are, 
like it's like 23 days just like weather and fatigue and injuries and mindset stuff like how and I know I, you were you were the chiropractor on the team so of course you're going to be managing some of the physical ailments and things that come up but any good chiropractor worth their salt is also going to be working on mindset with them sure. how did you continue to keep the output of your athletes consistent to be at that high level? What were some of the things that you were able to impart with them in order for them to continue to punch out what they were punching out? The, the, the tour is it's a very complicated event because as you said, it's like 23 days, 2,500 miles, rain or shine, sleet or snow, you put on your clothes and you go to work and, and nobody cares. Your, your job is to show up and get the job done, whatever that takes. And I've always considered it the ultimate life clinic because what you'll experience in three weeks, you'll experience in a lifetime. It's a great way to prepare for life. Um, the riders sh show up at um, maybe 5% body fat. They leave like minus 20% body fat because they're <laughs> losing so much weight. You know, they're God. consuming 10,000 calories a day and they're like still losing weight. Mm. And it's the ultimate diet. It's the ultimate diet. Eat whatever you want. You're still losing yeah. weight, man. It's a dream. <laughs> Just a dream. So, uh, it fit my personality perfectly, but also I'll have to credit the uh, management of the team that allowed me complete freedom to create the model of what's possible to care for the athletes in terms of their recovery and their preparation for every day's ride. Mm. Because you wouldn't find that in most institutions. They're too steeped in tradition. They're too steeped in their histories. The hierarchy is too tight. So the elusive maybe 5% of possibility, you can't find through that because the structures are way too rigid where with the management that I work with, it's like, you know what you're doing, just do what you got to do and show up and let's just get the job done. So with that freedom, we were able to truly access things that most people didn't have the ingenuity to do that both had clinical validation and scientific, uh, uh, you know, vigorous um, uh, validity to them. And uh, to me, that was a dream come true for me because it allowed the model of the future to be created at that point that gave us a decided advantage on the recoveries and the preparation. And so uh, with that freedom, there was also the human side of this where riders are human first and then they're cyclists and athletes second. And while the athletic bodies are healing, then the person's mind as a human needs to be spoken to to make sure that whatever has to get said to them to keep them in the game appropriately is addressed each and every day. And that's always shifting. And each of the writers has their own personality. And it was really my job to address that side of it, to keep them in the game, performing at their highest level mentally and physically. Huge responsibility, um, something that I was deeply passionate about. And for me, the evidence uh, was conclusive that the elusive access to the percentages that trying harder can't get you to, it's a matter of ingenuity and finding ways to access those. We had the freedom and that was displayed in the uh, dominance that uh, we showed in the eight tours that uh, we were victorious in. Amazing mm -hmm. experience for me. And it, again, taught me a lot about human nature and about human limits and how do we get beyond the limits and how do we say what to who, when to stay in the game. 
there's a lot of mythology out there about what people think it really is to get to the top and stay there. And there's a lot of mythology in terms of mindset. You know, if we're talking about ways of preparing the mind, I guess you could look at gratitude journals, you could look at positive thinking, affirmations that are like pre-preparatory for us that set a certain tone. Mm-hmm. But I think in real time, as we're meeting life head on moment by moment where real things are thrown at us, there has to be a champion's mindset that can recognize and respond to the challenges to avoid preventable problems and capitalize on best opportunities by having a state of readiness to step into the things that are probable. And so those are what I work on very well with the athletes to make sure that we come from our champion self, not from our human nature, fear-based self, because you cannot create excellence when you're driven by your fear impulses. You have to look at life through another different lens to do that. And that's what the champion mindset and what the champions have showed us. So let's uh, let's start working. Let's start unpacking that. So I know you have a, a framework that you work around called the Champions Blueprint, and it is a lot of there's a lot of mindset. There's a lot of team assembly, um, mm-hmm. and I would like to. I know that there's uh, several different steps that I'd I'd like to unpack with you um, if you're uh, if sure. you're willing to 100%. do that. Hundred percent. Let's do it. Yeah, the and uh, I I say this because it's you know when you look at sport, sport is a, pr- a particularly good example of people with lots of natural ability, right? But there's only a few that sort of rise. Like you think of mm-hmm. you know the Michael Jordans in basketball and the Gretzkys in or the Mario Lemieux in hockey, or you know. I would say like the, you know, Lionel Messi or Ronaldo and mm-hmm. like when it's time to put the, the ball in the back of the net, like they do it, <laughs> you know, like it's when it's time to rise up, yep. no matter what they're consistent, they deliver, they punch it out, no matter, like no matter what they're feeling. So let's, let's walk through what it takes to be a champion. You said there's some preparatory things like meditations and affirmations, which um, if I'm reading between the lines, you're like, that's a little bit too soft for, for your liking. There's a little bit more of a strategic and systematic uh, approach that, you're, uh, that you like to dive into when you're creating uh, a really big goal. Yeah, there's a really actually a biology to it. And, and again, just deep appreciation for the gratitude journals and the affirmations and positive thinking. But to just say that those are sort of passive things that are done in the privacy of your own experience. Mm -hmm. But when you engage life as it really is, like in combat, in daily life, there has to be the ability to recognize and respond to whatever that is that's in real present time to transcend it, to be able to achieve that which you do that honors your talents. Mm -hmm. I think the fundamental thing to be mindful of here, the way that I see it is that, you know, our human nature really does have two mindsets that are working opposite of each other. We have the human mindset on one side of it, which is our human nature that's incredibly predictable, but our human nature is something we can't shut off because it's biologically encoded to our DNA. And when we look at that, there are several different beliefs that fall in line with that. Those being fear-based responses to life, they cannot take us to excellence because they're not 
based on excellence. They're based on survival. And survival demands immediate response to things to get out of harm's way, many times faster than we can think. But that's not how we create our greatness or create excellence. For example, have you ever said anything that seemed really right at the time? And then you said it faster than you could think. And when it came out, it didn't work so well. Never. I don't know. Yeah, never, of course. Well, you're the exception, of course, (laughs) to the other 7 billion people on this planet. But I think we all know like, well, where did that come from? Yeah. I mean, that was clearly a defensive response that was survival-based because it just destroyed a relationship and it didn't have to. But man, did it seem right at the time. Mm -hmm. So clearly there's something there that recognizes faster than we could think the ability to respond. For example... Let's say you step on some ice and you slip, or your hand knows where to put it to break the fall, right, right. but you couldn't think fast enough to put your hand there. So again, mm-hmm. clearly, something is listening faster than we can think. And so those are our survival impulses. And survival is about survival. It's not about excellence. Survival doesn't care about your gold medal. It doesn't care about your greatness. It only cares about survival. But it does get first dibs at every moment of our life. It's the first filter. The problem is, is that it can only repeat history. It can't make it. So we're trapped in it. But the good news is that in opposition to our human mindset, we have our champion's mindset, which is calibrated towards excellence. You know, there is something within us that wants to create a life of contribution and value mm-hmm. and does want to give back. I was talking with a client today. And when we were doing our initial intake, he said, I know that I'm capable of more. I want more. I'm underperforming. How do I get there and fulfill my potential? So he clearly knows and wants his highest demonstration of self. He just doesn't know how to get there. Yeah. So we have these two opposing forces that are control that are battling with each other 24 hours a day for control over our thinking. Human nature wants survival. Champion's nature doesn't get first dibs, but it does have final say, and it's the only way that we can create history. So let's look at a practical example. So let's say you're given an opportunity. Your fear-based survival human nature is going to say, what do I stand to lose here? I don't Mm -hmm. know if I want to do this. I'm defensive. I don't want to hug. I could fail. I'm not going to share. It isn't going to happen. Well, champions don't think like that. That's human nature. That's our default. Can't turn it off. Our champion's nature is, no, what do I stand to gain here? There's plenty enough opportunity for success for everybody. Should I engage this and what do I stand to gain? What will the benefits be? Optimistic, sharing, wants to hug, expansion in the lungs. So you can see the contrast. Yeah. So let's say you're given an accountability. What's the first thing the human nature is going to say? Well, I'm doing my best. So they've already decided what the limits is without even trying it. Where a champion would never say that, given an opportunity. given an accountability, they would say, well, actually, I'll find a way. Mm -hmm. Why do you think I'm given creativity, ingenuity, and insight, and curiosity? It's to find a way. So again, you can see the contrast here, and we could go through a couple of others, I think. Like, for example, I helped a guy win a gold medal because he was in conflict and melting down two and a half weeks before the Olympic final, and his federation called me in to help him. And I talked with them and I said, here's the problem is that you and your team 
think you've got to be perfect to win a gold medal. Does that sound right? If you're perfect, you're going to win a gold medal. That's what human nature thinks. But that's not what history tells us. So what I told him is that the problem with thinking that you need to be perfect is that you're making a contingency for every detail, but your brain is always going to make up another detail that you think that you need to find to be able to be perfect that you're not going to find. Therefore, you've already lost. And that's your survival instinct, your fear telling you this. It's not real. I said, what the champions do is that they focus on the two things that have to go right. So for you to win the gold medal, two things. Don't change your warm-up. Do your first four steps to get your foot on the board where it needs to be to get the lift and win. That's how you win the gold medal. You're not trying to be perfect. You're doing the two things that have to go right to win. Two weeks later, presto, instant gold medal. So there's this tug of war that we all experience the anxiety of life, should we or shouldn't we? That's how we're experiencing the struggle between our human and our champion's nature. And unless we overcome our human nature to become, I guess, superhuman in a certain sense by taking certain actions that have been demonstrated by prolific achievers to take us to the promised land, we can never live a life of uh, passion, purpose, productivity, or prosperity. It's not possible. And so to me, that's one of the first places to start in gaining access to our potential to clear the way beyond the mythology that keeps us stuck, that can't deliver us into a life of excellence. Can't get there. That's so great. And you know, what you're saying implicit in what you're saying is that it's about, you know, becoming comfortable with the fears and the, and the voices that you have in your head and doing it anyway, and having the trust and acceptance that the training that you've done up until the moment of performance, whatever, whether that's getting up on a stage or that's getting up in front of a hundred thousand people and running, you know, a hundred meter dash or whatever. It's around knowing, sticking to the routine, which I think is, you know, and we can, I don't know what your thoughts are on this, but I, I find that one of the things that really distracts from achievement is like shiny blinky, you know, like here's a new thing that's going to get you here and here's a new thing. And then you just, you just are just pulled wherever the, Correct. wherever the shiny blinky object is, is flashing. And um, when you have a, you know, a template, like you're talking about, when you have this template for this is how I'm going to uh, behave. This is how I'm going to act. I am going to be, uh, I'm going to practice self-agency. I depend on myself. Then it, and I'm going to get rid of all the excuses. Like you were saying, like I'm doing my best, and what do I stand to lose? Like these are all kind of like uh, scarcity, very. Um, uh, it's it, it's based in lack, right? When we yeah, move into that, fun, yeah, that human nature, exactly. Human nature. Move into you, that. You can't, yeah, you can't. You can't escape it, and that's turned on 24 hours a day. That's our biology. Yeah. You can't escape it. Yeah. And, you know, as, as you said, you don't have to get rid of human nature to do what has to go right to succeed. But that's another myth or human nature wants to make us feel that unless it's quiet, we can't move forward. That's not yeah. true. Yeah. This can be whirling and telling you all sorts of stories. But as long as you do this, then you can get your gold medal. But, but unless we have a model that we can look at to understand the process that's happening within us, then what happens is, I think we've all heard of the imposter, correct? Imposter syndrome? Yes. 
Well, I want to tell you what I think the real imposter syndrome is. The real imposter syndrome is our human nature that we identify as us because that's not us. That's the survival instinct side of us that we didn't ask for this part of our biology. Mm-hmm. But the real us is the one that wants to create a difference. And so once we learn the vocabulary of how excellence is achieved and we apply that, that's the only way that we can put this into the background because we can't shut this off. Neither does this have to be silent for us to do what has to go right. So also, as you said, Stephanie, correctly, is that the champion's golden rule is you do the homework and the test is easy. Yeah. When you perform well and you have evidence in your, in your preparation that you can do it, well, then you just have to do it when it comes time to doing it for real, when it counts. Mm-hmm. And that's a trained discipline that we have to train ourselves into because that doesn't come naturally. Remember, fear, impulse is human nature. And so when we have something important that needs to be executed, then that importance creates fear mm-hmm. that holds us hostage and jacks with our timing where all we need to do is execute this as we did in our preparation to transcend our human-based survival impulses. And that's kind of the secret. If we haven't prepared and we don't have evidence, then you can't trust something that you don't have evidence of. And that's why preparation is really everything. Right. Where kind of the mantra and goal achievement is you don't need to prepare, just make it up as you go. Well, again, that's mythology. That's part of the pop culture vernacular right now that's enticing to the human nature because it offers a shortcut. Mm -hmm. But the champion side of us knows that it it is truly about the preparation because will and talent aren't enough. It's all about discipline and readiness. And I, I have to say this came in. So I was talking to you. We were, we were talking, you were helping me during a time when I was navigating closing uh, my clinic, which was emotionally uh, very difficult. But at the same time, I was also uh, scheduled to be on my first sort of big documentary with uh, Dr. Mark Hyman. I was going to be on his Broken Brain uh, docu-series. And I remember you coaching me, you're like, you just have to nail the first sentence. Like once yeah. you just get, like you just said, like you got to get the first four steps and then yeah. don't change your warm up. And you know, you're like, just like say, hi, I'm Dr. Stephanie. And like, once you do that, then you're off and running. And I remember like sitting down for the interview and like, okay, just like, I got to get out. Like the first, once I just get that first thing out, like I was so, (laughs) you know, I was nervous, but I was like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to kill this. I'm going to crush this. And I remember at the end of the interview, uh, the interview, the interviewer was like, that was just so excellent. Like you just, and I remember I, I, the next time I got on the you phone did, with you, it was the best. I, was, I was telling you, and I was like, I did it. And it was so good. And I'm so proud of myself. And thank you so much. You know? but it was supposed to happen. Yeah. But you said, but you said, cause I, I remember saying to you, I felt so calm after the interview. And you're like, of course you felt calm because you prepared. <laughs> like if you, it's yeah, like, yeah. you only get this ecstatic, like, oh my God, if you were like, oh my God, look what I got away. But look what I got away with. Yeah. Oh, but you yeah. were preparing yeah. and you well did it. Yeah, yeah, that's a funny, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Way to All go. Right. Now that was epic. Yeah. Absolutely epic. It was it was so great. It was a it was a highlight. And I had set, you know, and I've been asked to come, you know, on many documentaries since then, but that was sort of the first one where I was like, okay, the homework, but you know, when you do the homework, the test, test is, is easy. You yeah. got it. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> that's fantastic. I am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery, heart health, 
and overall aging well. I personally decided on an infrared sauna from Sunlighten because of the range of far wavelengths and near infrared wavelengths that it offers. Saunas help with detoxification and rejuvenation to rid your body of toxins. It helps with heart health by improving circulation, reducing blood pressure, and helping keep the arteries supple. It helps with muscle recovery by easing the tension and soreness to recover faster. And of course, stress reduction with the warmth and the relaxation of sitting in a sauna. It's crucial for hormonal balance and achieving a state of well-being necessary for a strong physique and a strong mind. If you visit sunlighten.com slash better and use code better to get a discount, that is sunlighten, S-U-N-L-I-G-H-T-E-N.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code better at checkout. So the champ. So we've been talking a little bit about mindset. That's one part of the blueprint. Yeah. Um, I think we skipped over. We skipped over legacy. Do we want to touch back there before moving forward? Well, I think just a couple things. Maybe I'll say just to yes. sort of zoom in on a few things here. I, I think that you know when we're talking about uh, the goal achievement roadmap, which is the goal achievement uh, program that I've created, really you want to make sure that you have the right goal. We have big, hairy, audacious goals. We have moonshots. We have. Uh, small goals, we have average goals, we have smart goals. But I think the most important goal that we need is the right goal. Mm -hmm. Because when we have the right goal, it aligns our mind, body, and soul. And when that happens, it gives us a very special type of focus that I have trademarked GOCUS, where (laughs) goal focus, GOCUS, where we can concentrate on getting stuff done to move forward towards goal completion Mm -hmm. while having simultaneous total peripheral vision where we can see better options starting to occur in our periphery. And we can also see blind sides starting to form that we can eliminate before they manifest. So right goals, extraordinarily important. Um, again, mindset you know, plays its role like we've talked about. Uh, I think another uh, side to this that's uh, really important is that we have a deliberate starting procedure when our preparation's done. And now we've made the decision to actively begin pursuing our goal. We have to have a very deliberate starting process that allows us to gain immediate traction to move forward. Because if we trip out of the gate, because we don't have a starting process, that can derail a lot of things and it can create a, a shaking confidence. So, you know, having a really good start procedure is uh, really important. Um, I also feel that it's important that we recognize that there are some things that we'll encounter along the path to goal completion that may want to make us talk ourselves out of continuing, but they're actually signs of progress. For example, like mm-hmm. when we start, we're all enthusiastic, and then our uh, initial enthusiasm drops a little bit then we think, well, gosh, I don't have the enthusiasm I originally had. Therefore, maybe I shouldn't do this because it means I'm not excited about what I'm doing. Therefore, I can't complete it. And that's another human nature myth. That's a complete lie. What do we know about all honeymoons? They almost well, they all wear off, honeymoon. right? We know that. <laughs> <laughs> they all wear off. And so it's exactly the same thing. We're pursuing a goal and the original excitement falls off. Mm-hmm. That's actually a sign of progress. That's also just your dopamine, not like fire. No, it's yeah, crazy, it's, right? Yeah, like, yeah. yeah, it's whatever. Okay, call yeah. it what you want. But I mean, the, the reality of this is, is that if you get to a place where, which you will, the enthusiasm drops, it's supposed to, because mm-hmm. now you're getting into the rhythm and the pacing of everything. Things have settled down. You're in a steady state now. 
that's a sign of evidence that you're making progress. So let's make sure we don't misinterpret that. Another area that we need to look at is what I call the daily grind. The daily grind is that point in goal pursuit where you're not thinking you're getting nearly enough back for the time and effort that you're putting into what you're doing. And you think about, well, maybe I should quit while I'm ahead because I'm not liking where I am. This is not any fun. But the trick is here is that every goal of any substance has got to have a daily grind component to it because this is where we're developing our street toughness for doing that which has to go right specific to the goal that we're pursuing. But you can't really do that to the full extent in preparation. It has to be battle hardening in the heat of the battle itself. And this is where a lot of people, when they encounter that resistance, it's difficult. This is where they quit. And it's only because they haven't been advised that this is supposed to happen because there is a promise with the daily grind is if you know how to get through it and you don't talk yourself out of it, and there are some deliberate strategies in the program that I put together that if you follow, the promise is you'll wake up one day believing that you could do it. And so you just got to learn how to stay in the game long enough to not talk yourself out of it. As a matter of fact, I work with Itachi. You know, Itachi is a multi-billion dollar company. It's like the big boys, like one of the top 30 corporations in the world. And I came in and worked with their executive committee when they were going through a company-wide transformation where everything was on the line. And they said, what do we do here? And I kind of looked at the roadmap and I said, there's two things we got to do. We got to get your mindset straight so you know how to remain a champion in this process. And I need to show you how to get through the daily grind so that you guys as a team stay together to get to a point where you believe it's going to happen. And so that literally the value of that was billions of dollars to them to interpret correctly that at a certain point in an ambitious goal, you have to expect that it's going to be hard and make sure that you interpret it correctly. And sure enough, boom, they got up one day and everybody believed that they could do it. And they went on to make that company transformation. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's critical. And maybe one other thing I'll say here, and then I'll turn this back to you is that we got to finish the job. And a lot of times what happen, <clears throat> happens when people believe that they can do it, then they can't finish the job. And the reason why that happens is they think that just because they believe they can do it, the hard work's over. They've done some, it, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. so somehow we're just, the plane's going to just land itself at the airport, mm. you know? But it, it's not like that. We still have a couple of more steps to go. And so what I'm saying here is that when you know that you can do it, do not try to rush to get to the finish line because a lot of people either are really excited to get the chocolate cake, you know, once they achieve the goal. The post on social, I did it. That's exactly right, man. Yeah. I did it. Yeah. And or they um, believe that if they don't get it, somebody will be the first to post on social and mm -hmm. you spend all this time to get there and you're second in line. And so all of this tempts us, and all of this is mythology, of course. And where does that mythology come from? It comes from our human nature. Yeah. Our human nature is not our friend. It tells us stuff that isn't real, mm -hmm. that appeals to our survival self, but it can't deliver excellence. Once again, the key to this is, is that when you're kind of getting back to the barn here, so to speak, and you can kind of taste the finish line, don't speed up. If you're in an airplane, does the pilot actually speed up on the final approach to get the plane on the ground faster? No. 
they slow the plane down, they kind of tip the wings, they just make sure they get it on the ground safely the first time without rushing. So if you trip before the finish line, then you don't finish. If you don't finish, you don't win. So my advice is, is that when you feel a sense of urgency nearing completion, slow down and just make sure that you're respecting your timing and that you have a very consistent pacing of checking off the last few things that have to go right to get you on the ground safely into the winner's circle. So those are some of the bigger things that are inherent in my goal achievement roadmap program. It's genius. That, I mean, that, and that's really what, you know, kind of coming back to how you've helped me, that was really how you helped me transition out of clinic in a way that I can look back now and say, I am so happy mm, about so how that happened. Cause I, you know, and when you think about like having the right goal, like I, when I was thinking about closing the clinic, it was like, oh, I've been doing this for 16 years. It makes so much money. Like, what am I doing? Why do I feel called to do this other thing? What's wrong? With me? Why can I ignore that? But when you decide, like when for me, I my human nature, um, to use your terminology, when I had emotionally decided okay, I, I do need to check. Like I'm checked out of this. Like I'm, I don't want to be in physical practice anymore. There is that, that sense of urgency. Like, okay, now that I've actually decided, now I want to get out of it. Now mm-hmm. I want to be out. And you really helped me. We went, I went on to like, the clinic was still kind of going for like another six or seven months. Yeah. Um, and still being able to hold space for my patients and run the business the way that I should and, and support my employees and the, all that kind of stuff, even though I was hurting. I mean, I was going home and crying every night, but like at, at the clinic, no one knew that. Um, and that's really what you're talking about. It's like you want to really make sure that you slow everything down before you yes. cross the finish line in order to do the job right so you don't crash and burn. Yes, yes, yeah. yeah. As a matter of fact, I, I actually wrote a paper on that called How Not to Blow It Just Before You Win. Yeah. And um, just maybe your audience might be interested in that. If you'd like to actually get I love that, that uh, paper that I wrote, How Not to Blow It Just Before You Win, Mm-hmm. You could actually go to www.drjeffspencer.com forward slash the number one, like D R J E F F S P E N C E R.com forward mm-hmm. slash and the number one. Mm-hmm. That'll take you to that PDF. And okay. while you're waiting for that paper to come back to you, there will be a, a video that shares with you a little bit about the goal achievement roadmap that might be just a great introduction for you. So just know that that's available. Awesome. I'll make sure that that's in the show notes as well. Thank you. Yeah. All right. So now we have the right goal. We have the right intention, the right mindset. We know that we have a start process. Mm -hmm. We know that there is going to be, we're not going to, you know, choke right before the, uh, the finish line. Let's, can we dive a little deeper into the goal achievement uh, roadmap or the champion's blueprint? Sure. Whatever you'd like. You tell me where you'd like to go and uh, I would be more than happy to do that. Yeah. Let's, I'd, love to, I'd love for you to describe some of the steps that are, that are involved in it. I know it's sort of divided into like planning and preparation and then extra sure, and kind of sure. going. Yeah. Sure. Sure. So why don't we just do an overview of this? So yeah. let's say that, okay, I want to pursue a goal here. So I have this idea that I want to pursue. So how exactly do I do that? Well, the first thing is, is that we want to prepare well to make sure that we're prepared before we start. So first key here, preparation precedes active pursuit of goal. And 
when we talk about preparation, history is revealed to me by looking at the evidence of kind of what I've seen over the last 50 years is that there's like five steps that are important to go through systematically that will confirm to you that you are ready to start. And why that's important is that if you have confirmation because you've gone through a process to confirm that you're ready to start, then there's no apprehension to starting. You just now only one thing left to do, and that's to push the go button and now actively begin begin pursuing the goal. Preparation, the first step is clarity. Want to make sure that you're really clear on what the goal is to make sure it's the right goal. Again, when you have the right goal, it gives it aligns your mind, body, and soul. And when those are aligned, you have a very unique type of focus called GOCUS, trademark word, goal focus, <laughs> TM. that allows you to focus on the things in front of you, hyper-focus to get stuff done to achieve the goal. But it also gives you peripheral vision to see better options occur and also blind sides starting to form that you can eliminate so they don't take you out of the game. The next thing in preparation is motive. We it's really a good idea to ask ourselves, like, why am I doing this? Because when we look at the whys and the reason behind what we're doing, and we objectively really look at it, when we know that we have the right reasons for doing it, what that does, that gives us drive. It gives us like, I can do this. It gives us an extra energy pack to stay in the game. And certainly we can all agree that to be able to live a life of passion, we have to manifest and we manifest by having the power to get the stuff done to be able to complete our goals. The third step in preparation is impact. To really look at the impact of our achieved goals on ourselves, on others, on our legacy, and the world that we live in. And why looking at the impact in advance of pursuing it is that when we see the impact of it, it gives us a different purpose in the pursuit and the achievement of the goal itself, because it not only elevates us and gives us credibility, it also enhances the quality of other people's lives experience and their life quality. It also amplifies our uh, legacy. That's something that will be on the human record for all of eternity for people to look at that represents us in our absence about what we did with our time and our talents. And Ideally, this should be something that people want to emulate, not steer away from. But that's a choice that we make. And certainly, understanding impact of the achieved goal goes a long way towards that. We did talk about mindset, and we talked about mindset within the context that we have the champion's mindset that overrides the human mindset because the champion's mindset is the only way that we can create excellence. And we can't shut off our human mindset, we can only supersede it. Mm-hmm. by doing the champion, the things that champions do in terms of their thinking to uh, advance towards goal completion. Taken as a sum total, what the champion's mindset gives us is courage, the rarest of all human attributes. And when we look at the definition of courage, we're talking about the ability to take action despite our survival impulses, one of the hardest things ever. And then the final step, the fifth step, <clears throat> in preparation before we actively begin pursuing the goal is resources. Before we start, we want to make sure that we have adequate time and energy, knowledge and skills, team, materials and supplies, and also that we have the right map. And when our 
time and effort confirm that we're properly prepared, then we trust our ability to actively begin pursuing the goal. And then that's where we then start the performance side of the process to achieve our goal, which again is made up of five steps. So again, first we prepare with five steps, then we perform with five steps. The first uh, step in performance is start. You've got to have a start procedure where you don't trip out of the gate. If you trip out of the gate because you bobble it, then you're going to get left behind. So we have a deliberate starting procedure that's rehearsed so that when we push the go button, the synchronicity of what has to go right does to achieve what I call a liftoff, which is the first measurable sign of goal progress. What's an example, of a, start, what's an example of a starting procedure? Yeah. So a, a starting procedure. So let's say that my daughter wants to bake a cake. So before we start, let's make sure that we understand that we need to get the oven preheated. And mm. then when the oven's preheated, we open the door and we stick the cake pan with the cake batter in it on the shelf. And we make sure that we hold the shelf with one of those little heating pads to not burn our hand. And we close the door as quickly as possible. So once the door is shut, and then we look through the window, we can see the cake in the pan in there. Well, that means that we have the first visible sign that the actual baking of the cake is in process. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. For me becoming an Olympian, I needed to win a local race as a 10-year-old first to tell everybody that I was actually serious about this. You know, if you want to do a podcast, that a liftoff would be, let's say, the first time you uh, choose your icon and now you uh, have it uh, listed with, um, like, let's say iTunes. Well, that's evidence that this is real. So there has to be something that tells us that this is no longer theoretical or we're just talking about it. Mm -hmm. We're actually doing it and there's evidence of that. Got it. You know what it's like. Let, let's say you want to write a book. So when you do the first table of contents, you look at it. Well, that's evidence. It's not the book finished yet. Mm -hmm. But it's evidence. This is tangible. Like, I've actually, I'm going to do this. You can see that? That means I'm doing it. Mm -hmm. And you notice how that changes you intellectually in what people think about you. It's not just Jeff thinking another crazy idea like the Olympics. But once I, you know, people thought, oh, he's, he's a cute little kid, isn't he? Just thinking about the Olympics at seven. Oh, isn't he just cute? But then when they realize, wait a minute, he just won a trophy here. You know what? He's going to do it. <laughs> it made it real to them. It made it real to me. Mm -hmm. So that's why that's important. Then the next step is, and this is sort of seductive, because when you have your liftoff, that first sign that you're actually doing it, then people think, well, this is going to be easy now. We just need to keep executing the plan and we're going to get there. It doesn't exactly work like that because with an initial success too early, it's really easy to overspend, get sloppy with your schedule, to not adhere to policy. Because our brain thinks that we're already euphoric because we've already achieved our goal when we're just getting started. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is that the honeymoon falls off. Then we may have to do a reality check. And this may be where we quit because we think that since something went wrong because our enthusiasm dropped, it means we can't do it. But if we know that this is coming and you tell your team, then they're not taken by surprise. And they look at Stephanie as a genius because... She said that this was coming and we didn't believe it because we didn't really even think about it. But now that she's demonstrated it, she's the person we want to follow forever because she's a great leader. And then we talked about the daily grind. You know, you're putting all this time and effort into it. 
and you're not getting anything close back to what you think you deserve. It's like, this is terrible. You know, you can always tell it because people's language gets short, you know, kind of throw their bag on the ground. They screech their car out of the driveway. When you ask them how to go, that's ah, all right. Is everything okay? And they, yes. You could tell that they're frustrated. That's a good sign because it means you're in the daily grind. As long as you're frustrated, you're still in the game. You haven't given up yet. But we have to be mindful that the daily grind is an important part of every, every uh, aspirational goal. And if you're not willing to confront it, then just go for small goals and just li live a life of mediocrity. Because any goal of substance, there's going to be a daily grind in it. And let's just be really clear about that. You know, most people, they don't want to prepare. They'll start and then they want to finish. They don't want to prepare well. They don't want to go through the daily grind. They just want to get, you know, to the chocolate cake in the winter circle. It doesn't work like that. And so if we understand that, then we don't talk ourselves out of it and we can keep our team in the game because we can tell them what's coming. It's like we're our own worst enemy because of the stories that we tell ourselves. Oh, it's getting hard. Therefore, I can't do it. That's human nature. What do you mean you can't do it? It's supposed to be hard. That's how you're developing your skill and your resiliency. Yeah. And your toughness to stay in the game. You know, don't be impulsive trying to finish. Don't trip. Slow it down. Make sure you get to the uh, terminal and deplane safely. You know, all this mythology. So those are really like the five steps in preparation and in performance. And here's another thing I'll say is that you know, you may only need two steps. Atachi needed two steps. Mindset, daily grind. Somebody I know that couldn't start, they spent too much time preparation. They just needed, they need step five resources and step six start. They just needed to get that cleared up. Mm -hmm. Don't worry about the other eight, you know? So again, it's not 10 steps that you have to go through if you don't need to. But you do need a process. Because if we look at the traditional goal achievement model, it's big, hairy, audacious goal, just determined to work harder than anybody else and wouldn't want it bad enough and have a detailed plan, keep working harder, don't give up, stay in the game, believe, 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 and you'll get there. And I know that that's not true. You may get there on a smaller goal, but you're not going to be able to create your bigger goals because it can't take you there. There has to be another level of readiness that allows us to get there just because we want it bad enough, things don't backfill. You know, right. we have to have the real skills to be able to shuttle the process along from one step to the next. So I just feel like when we're clear that goal selection is not, or goal setting is not goal achievement, they're two different things mm -hmm. completely. Yeah, I like the nuances in your framework a lot because you're right. We do hear that a lot. It's like, you're just going to want it better than anyone else. And if you want it, if you're hungry, I mean, certainly you have to have hunger, right? Like Absolutely that, right. You know, right. you have to have the hunger and the willpower and the discipline to see it through. And you have Absolutely. to- Absolutely. Fall in love with the monotony of the daily grind. Like you have to, you know, you <laughs> have I to must. fall in love if with I, it. If I must. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but a lot of the messaging really is- Put your head down, no matter. But there's all these different psychological components to it. What you've been talking about, where Correct. having yeah. a starting 
rhythm. And when you get into the daily grind and the effort doesn't match the outcome, you know, what happens to our mindset and where we go and the, 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 the attractiveness of quitting, you know, starts to increase. So I love that you've incorporated all of the uh, the different, like the champion's mindset and, you know, so you have the champion's mindset, but we always have to understand that it's like Thelma and Louise, right? Like they're both... They're, always, man. The boogeyman's always there. Totally. Yeah, always, which is so powerful and, and useful. Um, and I wanted, to, I wanted to parse this with a discussion around parenting. Um, we've talked about this offline, you know, when we've, we've had the opportunity to see each other, um, and you've shared, um, you know, how your parenting of your daughter has really been, um, you know, in your words, uh, you know, harder than the Olympics, right? It's been harder than a factor of a thousand. Yeah. Yeah. And when, when you, when you meet your daughter, she's, I mean, she's gorgeous. She's beaming. She's happy. She's attentive. She's cheer. Like she's worked at Giovanni's uh, yeah. events before. Like she's a joy. Like she is living, breathing joy in the somatic form. Yeah. But it wasn't words. like, yeah. Maybe you can share a little bit about your experience uh, with her, and and even just looking at this goal achievement roadmap, how that has helped you, <laughs> if if at all, um, in your in your quest for being a champion parent. Well, well, thank you. Actually, the goal achievement roadmap kept us in the game. Just to kind of set the stage for this is that we did and were called to consider adoption. You know, there are certain things that occur to you in life that just kind of won't let go. And uh, we did then actively pursue a goal and we decided that we would uh, ultimately pursue a, an adoption in Colombia for a variety of different reasons. And um, we were uh, after you know very tedious period of paperwork and vetting and all this stuff, we were uh, confirmed to be who we said we were, and then we were matched with um, a child up for adoption. And she was ten at the time, and you know ten is a very challenging age, and most people don't want to deal with older kids because of the terrible behavior problems that. Uh, are encountered uh, so much so that most people at the end of the year give the kid back because they can't take it. And, th- and then they get divorced. It's so disruptive. Mm-hmm. And I was certainly aware of that, but that's not where I took my cues from. I took my cues from, you know, is there a resonance between me and the process? And what is my uh, belief and connection with whether we should or shouldn't do this? It's kind of a different way of making decisions that does have an intellectual component where you do look at the pros and cons of it, but at a certain point you have to do have to go with instinct. And, um, uh, we went to Columbia and we spent six weeks with, with her there. And then at the end of that six weeks, which is like a trial run, then you decide, you know, whether you're going to adopt or not adopt and everybody got votes on it and we adopted and she went through with the adoption. And when we brought her back to America, uh, then we really saw what we were up against, meaning that she didn't speak English, we didn't speak Spanish, there was no language. So it all started with, you know, primitive sign language. Mm-hmm. There was no one there to guide us. And uh, she had no school. And just imagine being 10 and coming to America or Canada, wherever you may be, 
mm-hmm. and you have no school and everybody since the age of one has been talking about what their graduate school they're going to go to is. <laughs> right, right. You know, Parenting what Olympics. Gonna, so what are you going to do? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what are you yeah. going to do? Yeah. And, and then she had severe PTSD and ADHD from uh, the severe mental and physical trauma that she was exposed to uh, for a minimum of five years being bounced around through the uh, foster care system in, in rural Columbia not to mention the abuse that she uh, endured prior to that um, in her own little village. So there was a severe history of trauma there that manifests itself in different ways. And she had a parasitic ridden body, little descended abdomen, almost lost her teeth. It was really tragic, surreal malnutrition for 10 years because of the just abject poverty that she grew up with. And so I, I realized immediately that this was not, uh, an average situation here, and our aspiration wasn't to just save a child, but to manifest the potential. Mm. And because of my uh, Olympic disposition, I couldn't be anything other than a gold medal father to her. Because we ask her into our world, and our world is about you know, winning your gold medal. And uh, I felt as my wife did that we need to finish the job here whatever that means and however long it takes and so i made the decision that uh starting tomorrow uh my job and my income will be cut 90 percent so that i can be the father that she deserves there was no reservation or uh, hesitation about that because you know in the olympics as an olympian you got to do what you got to do to have a chance to win your gold medal you know, there, there's, there's no negotiations on certain things that are just given that you got to do. And um, to say the least, it was difficult. My, my wife cried every day for nine years and nine months. It was so difficult. Um, the lying, the cheating, the deceit, the abject behavior, uh, defiance uh, was just unbelievable. But the most important thing about this is that I, I never thought that that was her because she didn't ask for that. You know, she was and could have been a great kid without that, you know, but yet how people showed up for her imposed upon her something that nobody should impose upon anybody under any given set of circumstances that we eventually, that becomes the lens that we look at life through. So I never held her personally responsible for that. And I always felt that her soul wasn't tampered with, even though there were these overt behavior uh, circumstances and behaviors that, you know, I, I had to experience day in and day out that was massively disruptive. But I, what I'll say to you is that um, through all of that and the steadfastness of my wife and uh, myself and our commitment to, to the vigilance to, to be the parents that she deserved, um, I'm proud to say right now she just completed her um, junior year in college which is really its own miracle when you think about it. And so uh, I can only say that this has been the most profound experience of my entire life because it was the most uh, difficult by far. I mean, the Olympics, um, you know, my odds of going to the Olympics were 180 million to one. And so uh, I, I defied the odds, I guess, with good help, but that's not what I want to focus on. I want to focus on the fact that um, what I learned from this experience with my daughter was invaluable to me that maybe I'll share with you some of the things that I learned. I learned first and foremost is that you can love anybody. 
you don't need a special reason to do it. You just decide that you're going to do it, and you do it. It doesn't in you know, to do it without any reciprocity or any bartering because it's like I never with my daughter. It was not a contingency how I was going to show up. I didn't barter with God like, look, I'll do this if you give me that. Can we make a deal here? I, I don't do that. You know, it's like you do what has to get done, and whatever it is, it is. You know, and if, if there's no change in my life, but there's a change in hers, that's okay too, because I'm not doing this to get a brownie button or to get any level of approval. You know, you just got to kind of finish the job. And so, you know, I, that was really pivotal to me. And so, part of that is that you always have to have an inherent trust in the process that it's going to find its way forward. And you got to do everything that you have to do at the moment without holding anything back. If you hold anything back that you need to do now for later, then don't plan on getting to where you want to go because you're not going to get there. So there has to be a level of trust and process that you have to adhere to to maintain your sanity and keep moving. No deals, no bartering. Mm. You know, and I also learned, uh, you know, in this process uh, as well that um, you uh, have to. Um, you always have enough energy to do anything on behalf of another person. You know, where energy gets sparse is where it's all in our own self-interest, as is our frustration. You know, when we're not getting what we want fast enough, we get frustrated. But that's showcasing self and getting for self and for self reasons only. <clears throat> that's where energy becomes a different commodity where when you do something on behalf of someone else because you really care about it and you're going to do whatever it takes to get the job done, you're always going to have enough energy to, to be able to do that. And I experienced that. And, and I also experienced that unless you face something so difficult so long, you cannot find a deeper sense of self-capacity that's begging its way to the surface to manifest the best you because when life is too good you don't ask a series of questions that takes you deep enough to get there therefore your life quality and your contribution will be compromised in some way so it's like a rite of passage that's necessary to get to what will be our best work like on the other side of that which i know to be true and you learn that you don't need as much as you think that you do you can do without a lot like and i can honestly tell you that i could sleep in a corner in a cot of a small room and I'd be happy because at least I had the ability to live an effectual life of uh, impact and support and of service to others. So the other stuff that we think that we need, we don't really need it. We just think that we do, but we really don't. So there's mm -hmm. a kind of moment of truth that's inherent in that. I, I also learned that you better decide the most important decision you can make is how you're going to show up every day. You got to decide it because uh, how you show up does make a difference. And I know that because had people shown up differently for my daughter, she wouldn't have the scarring that she may not be able to outrun. You know, it's still a work in progress. And she didn't ask for that. She didn't ask for any of that. People imposed it on her. And I just feel like, you know, our private life to work our way out of our humanness is our own private business that we shouldn't make part of what we do and how we interact with other people. And of course, speaking to the human champion mindset side of this, People will say, well, that's just me. That's who I am. We've all heard people say that. I'm just yeah. an overreactive empath. That's just the way it is. I didn't ask for it. Now, hold on a second. You know, that's really the human nature, you reacting that you've identified with you as you. That's not you. That's your imposter you. 
because the real you isn't going to act like that. And you know it because you, you don't want to be like that, but you, you believe that that's you. It's not true, mm-hmm. you know? And so with us as people, you know, to me, you have to show up as pristine as possible and to give everybody your best work every day to be an encouragement to call them to a higher game. Because to me, life is hard enough just living it by yourself. You know, you get more than zero people in a room and it's trouble just because you got human nature involved in it, you know? <laughs> so, so just don't have that right to do that. Right. To me in the morning, you have to make that decision. Mm. Am I going to show up and make everybody pay for the life I wish I had, but I don't? Or am I going to show up and work that out on my own and be the person that they need to have as a, a life option and perhaps a case study to follow and emulate? Mm. I think you know, also that um, maybe, I'm not going to say the most important, but maybe so, but I learned that you must always hold space for a miracle. Always. You must always hold a little bit of space for a miracle, even though it may not seem possible. Don't decide on that. Just always hold space for it because I can honestly tell you that, you know, nine years and nine months and all of a sudden my wife stopped crying because there was a change in my daughter. There was a cumulative effect that eventually manifested itself where she came home one day, she put her books on the table, she sat down, opened the books and studied. And she was now on the dean's list legitimately, not because she was a ringleader that could <laughs> make things happen that weren't real in high school, you know? That's the champion, man. It's like, yeah. which day was it that made her study? Not, it was not one, any one day. It was the right. accumulation right. of that every day, every day right. that daily grind out, output doesn't right. match effort, but <laughs> right. you know, the accumulation. Right. Yeah. Right. And it's interesting, though, that in the champions, uh, the goal achievement roadmap, that the promise of the daily grind is belief. Mm. You know, eventually you wake up one day and the miracle's there where you believe you can do it. And and for us was that, you know, moment when she um, was able to graduate, uh, you know, with honors from junior college. High school was one milestone because nobody in her family ever graduated from elementary school. I mean, imagine that elementary school didn't even go no reason to but there yeah. are some other things as well that are very very tragic that we won't talk about but just to say that you know you, you hold on to the potential and possibility of a miracle and you just keep showing up and putting one foot in front of the other and you remain steadfast to that which you know to be true that's been revealed to your conscious awareness and deep-seated sense of belief and knowing you know if you hang on to that because sometimes that's all you got you know, you don't have a lot of evidence, you know, but if you do have a knowing and you stay vigilant to that and you, you apply through that, that's really almost a premonition of miracle that it just doesn't hear yet, but eventually it will. And I also learned that there's nothing that could take you out of the game except us. If we give up or we misinterpret what it is, there's always a path to get there. And, um, so in summary, that's truly the, the, the crowning experience of my entire life, you know, was that. And uh, we adopted when I was 58. People thought it was absolutely crazy and out of my mind at the height of my career, you know. But I think what's more important is that you kind of have to answer to your truth and how you showed up. And did you answer the call? Or did you play it safe and chicken out? I mean, you know, we all have this kind of yeah. criteria that we're accountable to at some point. And um, 
you know, here I am on the other side of this and another year in school. And she's, she's, it's crazy. She is doing summer school. She works two jobs. Incredible. And let me say one other thing if I can, is that yeah. um, I told my daughter when we adopted her, two, two, things, two things I like to say here is that um, I said, and she could barely even understand English. You know, I think she understood my vibration more than my language. And I mm-hmm. said, I have a couple of nicknames for her. one's kid, the other's Chiquita. You know, I said, Chiquita, here's my promise to you is that you're always going to have enough to eat because she didn't have enough to eat in Colombia. So much so that when she had hunger pains, she told me that she'd pick up gum off the bottom of seats and chew the gum. So she wouldn't have to have hunger pains. And when she couldn't get it from under seats, she picked it up off the road and ate it, you know? And and so um, when she told me that, I just wanted to assure you that you're always going to have enough to eat because that's all she could think about with her little dissumbed parasitic ridden body and her big little abdomen there, you know, Mm -hmm. just said, don't worry about it. You're always going to have enough to eat. And I told her that I'm never going to let you down. Because her country let her down, her family, everybody, friends, everybody let her down, man. Mm-hmm. You know, she was raised as an, as an animal and raised as a, as a criminal, a thief, a liar, and a cheat. That's how she was raised, you know? And as I told her, I said, your mentors would be very proud of your skill because she was as clever as they come, trust me. Mm-hmm. But the third thing that I said to her is I said, look, even though um, you've had it tough and if there's anybody that deserves a break in this world it's you but you got to know something here you got to earn your place on the team no free passes it could have ruined her man you know so scrubbing the floor and doing all the stuff that, that we all did as a family no exemptions from that and then when she left to go to school every day before she even understood english i said don't be average because i wanted to start to convert her neurology and get used to the don't be average. And we needed to start to break the cycle now, even though she didn't understand what I was even saying. And that was the most effective choice of words that I found had a key resonance with her. Mm-hmm. And to me, those are some of the uh, key things that it certainly kept her in the game, but it also kept us in the game as well. That yeah. yeah. had we not had the roadmap, I don't know what we would have done. Is it the right goal? Yeah. Why? Because you're saving a human life. And you're also uh, manifesting a destiny. Step number two, motives. Why are you doing this? Well, we're doing this again to honor the privilege of uh, being the parents of someone. And there's 138 million kids on this planet that have no home. Uh, You know, is that important enough? Of course, for us, it was. Uh, Step number three, impact. What's the impact of this on us? We would have showed up for duty and have been of service as called to. What's the benefit to her? The chance to manifest her greatness and to showcase the story to other Colombians and other people on what you can do that you don't think is possible or you've never considered. The value of the legacy on this for us is, well, we showed up for duty and we did the job unconditionally. You know, how did it affect the world around us? Well, it was a low carbon footprint, so there you know, was no impact on global warming. You know, just to paraphrase this in sort of a humorous way. Mm-hmm. Mindset. We adjusted to whatever it was, but I can only tell you this is that had we come at this from our human mindset, we would have never been able to make it even a year because the fastidiousness that was required to stay in the game 
you had to have a champion's mind where you're not going to crack under any given set of circumstances that gave us the courage to do what had to go right to keep us all in the game. Did we have the resources? Yeah, we had enough to do it. Uh, she had her own room for the first time in her entire life rather than sleeping on a cement floor with a blanket, you know, and a pillow, you know, with a roof overhead rather than a crack roof where all the rain came in and soaked her every night. Uh, she had a warm shower, never had a warm shower. So, you know, we had the resources to, um, you know, care for her in a way that she deserved to be cared for from our perspective. And, you know, uh, what better use of resources is there to support another individual? So with all that, then we began the journey. Um, what was our first milestone? Well, we needed to arrive in Columbia. So our first start, we need to get on a plane and arrive in Columbia, which we did. Then we got into honeymoon phase. We met her for the first time, step seven. It was just glorious to see this little kid, but she only came up to my mid chest because her growth was stunted because of severe malnutrition for 10 years. It's like, you're kidding me. She's 10 and she's that short. Oh my gosh. You know, weighed 60 pounds, I think. And so then, um, once the honeymoon wore off and we realized, uh Oh, you know, this is going to be difficult. Um, we have to do a reality check here because we're going to have to recalibrate, you know, 90% of my work and income has got to go. I'm going to be here as dad, which it did. Then there was the daily grind. So that was nine years and nine months that I knew how to stay in the game because we had the roadmap and we knew the promise. You're going to wake up one day believing you could do it. And then step number nine, where we go from knowing, believing we can do it to knowing we can do it. We needed to break out. When she graduated uh, with honors from junior college where she couldn't cheat any longer, then we knew it was for real. Then we needed to finish the job. And she's doing that like right now. You know, she's working two jobs and she's, you know, hustling and she's just a great kid. And uh, now 21, not so much a kid, but, you know, I know that she's going to get to the finish line where she can then uh, start to manifest her own life in her own way. Mm-hmm. So had we not had the roadmap, it would have been very difficult to keep track of where we are because if you rely on how you feel to be your indicators of progress. Such man, a non-specific, <laughs> poor indicator in all rounds. Bad idea. Such a, I ne- pain is never the thing you should pay attention to. Yeah. yeah. That goes for if you're a patient in a chiropractor's office yeah. or you are you know, adopting a child from Columbia. Like that is such a yeah. non-specific. Yeah. But yet, a, a default that human nature cherishes as the ultimate yeah. criteria. So again, yeah. human nature tricks us into something that can't get us to where we want to go. So that's so that's the story. Um, There's so many beautiful parallels there too. Like the you're saying nine years and nine months, and earlier in our conversation, you're like, it took me about ten years to get to the Olympics. It's about the same thing. Yeah, and the your father, you know not being able to have a father who was able to bring out the best in you. You're lucky to have a surrogate in in some of your mentors, but now you're able to bring that full circle and be the father that you never had to your, to your baby girl, to your girl. Yeah. 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 Yeah, It's, you know, I'm 69 now. I just turned 69. It's like, I don't know what that's supposed to feel or look like, but I, I do feel, you know, having been through a complete passive life now, I can really look at it for what it is and uh, see the um, points of distinction that we need to be mindful of as we go through the different decades of our life to make sure that we're on track and that we're not ahead of ourselves or behind and that we're always 
looking at ourselves through the eyes of the mythology of the human mindset versus the champion so that our aspirations are real and they represent us. And probably in closing here, just to say that, you know, there's only one of us in all creation. And I think about that a lot. There's no Stephanie, there's no second Jeff. There's only a first of everybody. And, you know, kind of knowing that it's important that we provide an environment for people to explore that fully to experience what I experienced as an Olympian, you know, our full potential to give our best back to humanity and to add a a positive bent to a a world gone crazy, I think is a really an important aspiration, you know, for us and that we're not trapped into a world of comparison. That's where our human nature wants to take us. But if we look at our distinctions and our uniqueness and those things that we're curious about and build a life on that, and we have a map and some mentorship to guide us forward, then we have the greatest security that we'll be able to manifest that life that we can turn our back on at the end and say, you know, there's nothing more that I could have done to make this any better. And it's like, that's how I feel with our daughter right now. I don't think there's one more thing that we could have done to, to influence her more than we did. And right now I'm very happy and proud to say that because of the vigilance that it took to stay in the game. You, I am so blessed to know you. I I feel so blessed to know you. You are the perfect blend of frameworks, pragmatism, linear thought, and the divine and holding space for me. I mean, it is just your wisdom is, I just, I just bow down to you. I mean, thank you so much for everything you've shared today. Thank you so much for your honesty and your transparency and your openness. I mean, thank you. Well, thank it's you. my pleasure. And a little bit of channeling goes a long way as well. Mm-hmm. So again, we all have a story to tell. And, and I would say that, you know, whatever our story is, we own that space. And that should be the platform by which we share with others without any apology what we believe to be true to be able to shortcut their life. And to me, that's its own reason for being. So, you know, I want to say, you know, thank you, Stephanie, for your continued friendship and loyalty and with great pride to been able to observe you, know, you moving through these massive uh, periods of life uh, contribution to yourself and other. It's just been extraordinary to see. So thanks for the privilege. Thank you, Doc. I appreciate that so there you have it my conversation with dr jeff or uncle jeff as i lovingly call him and i hope that you got a lot out of this as i said in the intro i think that this is one to come back to many times over i was re-listening to this conversation as i was recording uh this very uh outro that i'm that i'm doing now and really just there's so much nuance and so much experience and so much wisdom that Jeff brings to the table. And he's just got the biggest heart, like the biggest heart. So hope that you enjoyed that. Wanted to also invite you if you've gotten this far in the podcast, this is a long conversation, but if you've gotten this far in the podcast, you are a Betty. You are one of my people. So please join the Facebook group if you have not already. The Facebook group is free to join. It is called the Better Community and the Better has an exclamation point at the end of it. I had someone uh, message me the other day saying, I can't find it, but it's Better exclamation point community on Facebook, free to join. We farm all of our questions from there. We get your advice. We are always polling you to see what you what you guys want to see next. So that's on Facebook and looking forward to seeing you there and we'll see you next week. 
I hope you enjoyed today's episode. For those of you who want to continue on this week's Geeky Magic Carpet Ride with me, visit bettershow.co forward slash show notes. You'll find research, links, summary notes, musings that I prepared in preparation for the podcast. And I often throw in some of my best practices, bonuses, and links. All the juicy bits are in there for you. And now for the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only, and the advice recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship formed, and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. This episode is brought to you by yours truly, Dr. Stephanie Estima, and Leverage. Leverage handles all production, creates the images that you see on my social media, and takes out all my awkward pauses. They are my secret magic bullet. You can visit them at getleverage.com forward slash better.